Hello and welcome to World Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson. This is my occasional podcast series where I, you know, talk to people about, I don't know, life, what it's about. Um, I don't really know what the podcast is about. I ask people if they have a philosophy towards something and then we just talk about whatever I find interesting. Anyway, that's what the podcast is. It doesn't come around very often and then when it does, there's always some massive intro with me up the front explaining why it doesn't come around so often and either apologising or cursing the podcast. So today I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, I want to do it more regularly. That's what I've decided. I've decided to stop saying I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to work out some way that I can actually do it and continue to do it. Now, to do that, I probably need a producer of some kind. That's what I've discovered. Uh, It's just way too hard for me to coordinate it all myself. Uh, Today's episode is with a hero of mine, Tim Ferguson, one of the uh, most talented comedians and best humans of all time. Uh, If you don't know Tim Ferguson, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time up the front giving a biog. Um, I always sort of think if you like listening to these people on this podcast, then you have a great journey of discovery as you find out more things about them that you are interested in. Uh, there is no way I could encapsulate this man in in a few words anyway, other than to say that he is just uh, one of the best people that I have ever had the pleasure to meet. And it is a great pleasure uh, to have met him and to have worked with him because when I was a kid growing up on a dairy farm on Anderson's Road, uh, some of my first comedic heroes were a group called the Doug Anthony All-Stars. They were to me... A kid of 13, 14, 15, the most outrageous and funny and brilliant thing I had ever seen in my life. And I was lucky enough to see them again uh, just last year. And, well, I could have given you the exact same description. Still some of the most amazing comedy that is and has ever been made in Australia. Uh, Tim and I caught up. Uh, Tim has MS. Uh, So uh, if you don't know that, we talk about it a little bit, but we don't get bogged down. There are a heap of other places where you can hear Tim talk about that but it meant we caught up in a cafe that's uh, near his house just because it was very it's a bit easier uh, for him and for us to have this chat so there is a coffee machine in the background so you'll hear a bit of noise you'll hear people get their coffees and that sort of thing but I thought it was uh, well and truly worth it to have the opportunity to have a chat with Tim we had this chat uh, oh six seven eight weeks ago I don't know like a long time ago and it was going to go up straight away and then uh, as some of you might be aware uh, my life has been wow a little crazy and unusual of late. Um, I've had a, a very bad back and then I took a flight to Wagga Wagga. And uh, as the old comedy expression goes and as the opening night of my show uh, went that night, a funny thing happened to me on the way to Wagga Wagga because uh, I got arrested uh, coming off a plane. Uh, it is a very long story. It was uh, not my fault. It was uh, as... My friends and I have said to each other a lot of recent, uh, it's very good that the one time I got arrested, I wasn't doing something illegal because, you know, it's fair to say there's other times in my life where that would not have been the case. So uh, it all worked out fine in the end and it is a very long uh, and hilarious story. Uh, so long that I'm not going to tell it right now. Uh, so long that I am going to tell it uh, in a touring stand-up show right around the country next year. I mean... Look, it was a pretty traumatic experience, but it really gave me an hour of new material. So I guess in the end of it, I'll feel okay about it. I'm not feeling that okay about it still at the moment. It, it, was a, it really was a little bit traumatic. I'm in America at the moment. I fly to Canada in the morning and I'm still a bit, uh, 
well, I'm still in a lot of pain for traveling, but also just the idea of traveling is not as uh, pleasant an experience as it was for me and has been for me for the last 20 years. So, uh, look, there's a lot. There's been a lot of good and bad times uh, since, and uh, I've got an optimistic uh, outlook that it'll make a really funny and interesting show. Uh, but yes, no more about that. But it just meant that a whole bunch of things in my life have been more difficult of late. Uh, and so I've been sitting on this podcast that needn't edit because uh, uh, Tim just wanted something uh, that we talked about uh, not in there. And I was absolutely fine with that. So uh, I just have not had time to do that. I have a producer called Mike Hell who produces this podcast and Tofop and uh, Fofop. Uh, there's been a couple of new episodes of Fofob up recently, one with the guys from the Weekly Planet and one with uh, uh, Gareth Reynolds from The Dollop. So uh, both really, really fun podcasts. And if you like either of those podcasts, uh, you might really enjoy those. And uh, Charlie and I have been trying to do Tofop and Two Guys, One Cup as regularly as we possibly can. Uh, we're trying to do those shows weekly at the moment. So how do I uh, make philosophy work? Well, I probably need a producer. That's that's probably what I'm saying. I probably need a producer because um, I'm off to Canada tomorrow. If I had a producer, I probably could have lined up some interviews while I'm at the Montreal Just for Last Festival. That's a good way to get this plug away. I start on Tuesday. I'm doing six shows of my show Critically Will in Montreal. Uh, if you're listening in that part of the world, the shows are selling all right. I'm only in a tiny little venue, but... Um, Apparently, uh, they're about half sold already, which is good, apparently, they tell me. Uh, but it'd be great if they were all sold. Uh, so if you're in the area and uh, you would like to come and see the show, it's my favourite show and I'm really proud of it and I think you will enjoy it. So uh, that's at the Montreal Just the Last Festival. But there's so many good people there. And I was looking at the lineup, and I was just like, oh, man, it would have been great to get this person for philosophy or this person. But unfortunately, with me juggling sort of my life and my commitments, plus uh, having to get ready for this festival and all these sort of things myself... Uh, there's just no way that I can coordinate that. I would have time to record it, you know. It would be a pleasure to get together with these people and have that sort of chat. And when you're at a festival like that, you know, you can find an hour or two during the day to get those sort of things done. But unfortunately, just um, with all the things on my plate, I am not in a position to uh, be the person coordinating that. So instead, what I've decided is if I want to do this more regularly is I need to get some sort of, uh, some, some sort of person who is actually going to, you know, help me book the show, help me kind of coordinate guests, coordinate interviews, those sort of things. So I'm looking at some way to make that happen. I don't really know what the answer to that is now. But um, instead of me telling you the normal thing about quitting, I'm telling you this thing about me doing it more regularly with no real details of when and uh, how, etc. that will ever be. But there you go. There's my hope. There's my vision board. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you really enjoy this one with Tim. Uh, he's brilliant. Check out all our other podcasts at tofop.com. You can see all the nonsense, the whole imaginary radio station that we involve ourselves in, uh, in Tofop land. So, um, and I hope you enjoy this podcast with Tim. Uh, please go and see his work. Look up the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Uh, read the books he's written about comedy. Uh, watch his movies. Um, he is an Australian comedy legend uh, and it was a great pleasure to have this chat with him. Hello and welcome to Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson and uh, joining me, let's just get into it because we're in a cafe. We're in a cafe in the inner city of Sydney, two typical former ABC latte drinking, although no, actually our guest did not have a latte. Let's just get to him. Uh, who are you? Tim Ferguson. Oh, I know. The way you said that was like you were signing off from a news report. Thank you, Will. 
<laughs> It'd be great if you just do the entire interview in this voice. Back to you. <laughs> Second question. <laughs> Second question, uh, as I warned you, was uh, do you have a philosophy towards anything? It doesn't have to be anything in particular, but it, is there one that you have? Yeah, I was thinking this morning, what if Will asked me about my philosophy like he said he would? <laughs> um, and I thought, you know, if I have any philosophy, any approach to anything, usually it's just keep moving, which for a comedian is handy because, you know, if a joke doesn't work, you just keep moving so people think it was just a sentence. Right. It was just, you're just building to something. And, you know, in life, you know, because we're always screwing up if we're living life correctly, um, you know, you just keep moving, even if it's round in a circle to fix the problem. So that's, that's my only overall philosophy. I like that, though, because um, I think in a comedic sense, like, let's talk about that part of it first. Uh, often the one bit of advice, if, if a new comedian asks me for any bit of advice, the one I can actually give and know it's decent advice is, no one else knows how your show is meant to go. <laughs> like, you know, the audience don't have a script that they're following along with. Yeah. If you, if, it, if you say something and no one laughs and you have the ability to keep moving on, they will just think that was a sentence in between the two funny bits. Yeah, yeah, it was just a <laughs> wry observation. Right. It was a great one-liner that you could put on a postcard Yeah, or something. it ended in an ellipsis. <laughs> right. <laughs> and later on... You do another one, they go, wow, I love those little things. It's like they're connected. It's a yeah. callback to the thing that nobody laughed at before. Now I understand why you said that serious <laughs> thing earlier. It makes sense. But in a life sense, that I'm interested in it as well. Because I think that often uh, people do, when they make a mistake, and yes, as you said, we all are going to make a series of mistakes every day. Mm. Some people have a problem not being able to move on from that mistake. So are you a person who has come to that uh, realisation that you, you know, it's important to move on? Do you feel like you already always had it in you? Uh, I kind of had it in me mainly because I was trained. My parents kept moving around, so I went to nine schools. Okay. Which meant that whatever you were doing, you were moving anyway. How was that? Because, like, I mean, to me, I grew up on the same road. My dad's lived on the exact same road for 73 years. He has never like moved off that road so obviously I went to the same school I lived in the same house for the first 17 years of my life what was it like to be a kid moving around so much well you don't notice in the same way you wouldn't have noticed you're in the same place all the time you've got nothing to contrast it with and so for me and my brothers it all seemed perfectly normal and natural um, turning up at a new school certainly by the time I was in high school um, the kid who was the most comfortable on day one in year seven was me because it was just another pond. Another bunch of fish, you know, look out for the one who might bash you, make sure you find a way to either make him laugh or give him a bite of your sandwich. Um, so the idea that the world keeps shifting under your feet kind of set me up to be perfectly happy by, you know, maintaining movement. And I make a lot of mistakes all the time Mainly because I try to live like uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, you know, you're a man in the arena, you're going to piss someone else off, so just keep going. Have, with that idea, you know, of you're going to piss someone off, because comedy so much is about the idea that, it, <laughs> I mean, it's subjective, right? Oh, and yeah. at its best, it's incredibly subjective. 
And, I mean, I, like many people of my generation, I mean, I remember seeing the Doug Anthony All-Stars. I must have been... I remember first seeing them on the big gig, you know. Big gig on the ABC and just going, oh, my God, what, what is this? You know, I might have just been 14 years old, I guess. You know, the exact, I reckon, right age to suddenly go, oh... I don't know what this is, but I know this is something that I like the idea of. I once got a fake ID uh, <laughs> in Tasmania so I could come and see you guys in Hobart uh, with my fake ID. I think it may have been my first... My first two fake IDs I ever got were both to watch stand-up comedy, which isn't probably the most <laughs> sexy or rock and roll story of all time. But it, at the time, felt very dangerous. Do you remember that feeling that people thought it was, you know incredibly kind of offensive and dangerous. Did it feel like that to you when you were in the middle of it? No, we thought it was all normal. Right. Um, We'd started on the street as buskers, so there was nobody telling us, oh, you can't say that, or nobody would come up afterward and say, you can't say that, because people would just drift off. Yeah, move on. Yeah, if you didn't like it, you just went and did your shopping. So nobody had ever pointed out to us that what we were doing was... Firstly, out of the ordinary, we right. figured everybody else was doing something like this. Um, Gretel Colleen was a comedian uh, we met, and her stuff was, you know, she would set fire to her head if that was going to get a reaction. Um, so we just thought it was normal. So when we did it on television, it hadn't occurred to us that people might be watching it and would be surprised. So we go on, I don't know whether it's the first or second episode, and sing Commies for Christ um, simply because we thought it was a good song. It was kind of interesting putting communism and Jesus together with the chorus of take marks, take Christ, take drugs, which we thought, you know, the kids out there might find amusing. <laughs> it turns out it was like we'd started a war. Um, so, which was even better because we thought, oh, wow, so we're controversial. We thought everybody was doing controversial. Um, so it was, uh, it was kind of exciting to find that out. But up until that point, I always thought I was a nice guy. It, it, well, it's interesting, though, because within the dynamics of the All-Stars, like, it, the interesting thing to me, like coming from a solo stand-up perspective and talking to somebody who was in that group dynamic, is that as a solo stand-up on stage... For good or for ill, you have to be all those characters. You know, you, you have to be the kind of cool one in some instances. You have to be the, you know, the dumb one in some instances. You have to be the punchline in some instances all within your own act. You know, you can't create those dynamics and play off each other. But when you're getting together as a group, are you talking much about those dynamics or do they just establish themselves naturally? We kind of uh, naturally gravitated to what the Marx Brothers had done which is you got the, the snappy one, the groucho guy, who was Paul McDermott, who's the, uh-oh, you've got to watch out for him. Paul was emerging from his shell as uh, an angry and rebellious, I'm tired of being bullied kind of short man. Richard Feidler, it slowly emerged. We needed a harpo because uh, having all three of us shouted people did seem a bit monotone. <laughs> And my job really wasn't to be the, the warm water in between them. My job was to do uh, what every cult leader needs. Every cult leader needs not just, you know, to be wordy like Groucho, um, but he needs someone who stands next to him who says, he's right. 
<laughs> even if you don't know what it is. And with McDermott, his brain is so big, he's always ahead of me. He just needed me to stand there. I don't even understand it, and that's why he's right. <laughs> and once we had that dynamic with the lamb that we would beat up, uh, it was kind of like uh, teenage Marx Brothers, where we beat each other up more than Chicho and Groucho used to. Um, what was the dynamic within the actual group in regard to, like, you know, putting shows on? Like, you know, who was bringing what to the table? What did what roles did people play? You know, how did that all work? Well, Paul and Richard argued a lot of the time, and uh, these days Paul Livingston and McDermott tend to, um, you know, argue as well, uh, but in different ways because they both. Uh, they both are fearful of each other mm-hmm. um, and so they sort of argue in uh, passive aggressive ways I think that should be a G do you? <laughs> but it's uh, the way we've always worked is much the same as now where if you want to do something once we've got the basic shell you want to do something you just start doing it uh, my new <laughs> feminist poem uh, I didn't tell the guys what was in it. I just said, I'm doing a poem here and I'm going to do another poem there. Right. And they say, oh, yeah, because we have this unspoken uh, rule, which is you get 100% freedom, but zero support. Right. So you can, you can do or say what you like, but if it fails, no one is going to scoop it up. There's no going to be no going, safety net. No one's going to say, I'll pick that up and I will You're out there it. on your own. <laughs> yeah, it's just people stand back yeah. from the corpse. So when you said, I've got these two slots for poems, they're basically sitting there going, well, whichever way this goes, this is a good result. Yeah, oh, they go up the back and sit down. <laughs> sit down because that's how it works. And, you know, the, doing the poem the first time is always tricky because it's not actually a poem that rhymes uh-huh. and the new one in fact is is uh, politically uh, politically difficult like <laughs> like the last one was the last one was, was about heterosexual males and how they're not actually masculine um, and that homosexual males are not necessarily feminine you know it's all about how uh, you know straight guy bullies will say oh man you know, those gay guys, they've got limp wrists and they're all girly and he's a pansy. But I just simply pose the question, um, if that's the case, surely you have to admit that there's nothing more masculine you can do than grab another man and fuck him up the arse. Right. Is there anything more masculine? And also, you think, what's the rhyme? You think we're impressed because your pizza is Hawaiian? but you can't take a neck full of dick without crying. It was just simply stating the truth that they would never have thought of, which is, you know, if anybody's going to be tough, right. it's the gay guys. Yeah, absolutely. Because straight guys can only have sex with girls. Yes. And the new one is about the dirtiest part of your body, which should be covered. You can walk around with your genitals. There's only so much they can do. But the filthiest part of your body the most actively sexual part of your body, the part of your body that has to be the most inventive sexually is your mouth. Right. And so surely everybody should wear burkas and walk around with their junk 
swinging in the air. Right. Because once you start looking at it, it's like, well, I suppose, I mean, I just asked people, what was the last sexual thing you did with your mouth? And you have it here uncovered, you filthy, filthy people. I mean, maybe we've been misinterpreting the sort of, you know, traditionally sort of Asian countries that cover their mouths. And we think because of like germs or air pollution or, you know, things like that. But perhaps it's purely just a modesty thing. Perhaps it is. It's their version of going, I'm just covering my dirty, dirty mouth hole. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, and good on them. Because, you know, everybody's mouth is a cesspit of bacteria, (laughs) for starters. A penis is, you know, it's covered in skin. It's really quite, you know, kept clean most of the time. Um, But it's just raising those things no one's ever thought of. So when I say to the guys, I've got a new poem... They kind of cringe, but they sit right at the back. <laughs> so talk to me about, because I it was uh, lucky enough to come and see you guys perform. It must have been uh, end of last year, wherever. It was before you went to Edinburgh, I think, uh, as part of the Edinburgh Festival. And so I came and saw you at the Comedy Store in Sydney. And then I read uh, Paul's book that he's just, Paul Livingston's book that he has written about you know, himself and, and you guys. And it's brilliant. And it gives people a real, you know, it's the, the book that none of you guys are ever going to write about you guys, so I'm glad somebody did, you know. And it's interesting to me, it was great for me to come and see it, but it was also very interesting for me to come and see it because I'd argue that the act is as relevant now as it ever was and obviously the new dynamic within the act pushes you to places, I think, where you're perhaps doing stuff that's more provocative than you were back in the day. Is that the sense that you have about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, because I'm in a wheelchair, because my brain doesn't work, because I've got my sclerosis. Because I'm in a wheelchair, it changes the dynamic of power now. Mm. Uh, before, Paul used to be the one in the middle. He'd come out and shout about something. I'd say, he's right. And Richard would go, oh, yeah, but, you know, he is right, but try to do it nicely. Now, Paul is like the guy who's trying to lead but I'm on so many multiple sclerosis drugs that I'm not making sense anymore Um, and Livingston's so old that he just wanders off (laughs) it's very hard to stand and be little Hitler when when everybody's sitting down eating sandwiches (laughs) and so uh, and, of course, at the core of it is, is, you know, it's about friendship and it's about love and it's about, you know, getting old. But also the thing that really uh, freaked out Britain when we got there was they were completely unprepared. We did no media because it all sold out. So we just turned up and, you know, nobody knew I'd be in a wheelchair. Um, so the, the thing that really unnerved them was seeing Paul playing someone who's trying to deal with people getting old, people dropping off the perch, people facing death. All of a sudden, we're the only show in the festival talking about that stuff. And it's... uh, So you're quite right where... Well, talking about it also in a way that... Because in some ways, you'll get shows that are either about... You'll have some young person pondering the idea of, like, you know, death and darkness and those sort of things. But, you know, they've got you know, another 30 or 40 years of stand-up left in them before they're <laughs> yeah. actually facing any of those eventualities. Or you have this survivor story, which is that, you know, I had cancer and here's my yeah. story about that or whatever. 
But this is not that dynamic. This is not you doing your solo show where you wheel out into a spotlight and read your poems in a mournful way and we all cry at the end. Like, that's, that's not what this show is. This is seeing you on stage, A, embracing and leaning into the, like, the worst parts of it. You know, as you said, the, the medication and those aspects of performance that you've clearly on stage lean into heavily rather than try to cover up, you know. And the dynamic between the group, which is that same thing of it's still that you don't get to see someone be mean-spirited to somebody who's in that situation in that sort of way. Like, you know, you don't normally see that dynamic, which I think is interesting. Yeah, well, the, and the new show that we've just put together uh, takes it a step further uh, where nobody has ever really talked about nobody's ever really gone into this and certainly you couldn't do it on a current affair you couldn't even do it on the 7:30 report which is to cover uh people who are carers who hate it right <laughs> you know i've been taking care of my mum for the last 15 years she's still dribbling yeah. And what I I must be happy because I love her. Sure, I love her. Yeah. I, I used to, but I don't yeah. love. Now I hate her. I don't love time. this sort of awful filled sock she's become. Right. She stares out the window. This is just it's an act of duty, and so we have McDermott as you know the primary carer. Um, Livingston as the secondary carer because he doesn't care as much. But it's. Uh, so the new show is talking about that. He's got this great song he, he put together, which is called I'm Just the Guy Who Pushes the Chair. Like, I used to be the hero. I used to be the man. Now when we go into a room, he gets standing ovations, and I'm just the guy who pushes the chair. So the envy and the jealousy of the carers around me in particular... Well, I mean, that, I can imagine that is a, but that is a, in some ways a universal story of people who are in those situations of, you know, people not seeing all that hard work behind the scenes of the person who is caring, if there is like that serious care. But it's interesting to me, uh, how are you with people helping you? <laughs> like what's, because I mean, I, the, my, I think my biggest problem with getting sick in any way is I consider myself to be fiercely independent. And so anything that, like, I'm, I'm a person who probably finds it very hard to ask people for help even when sometimes I need help. And I always feel completely helpless, you know, when I, when I have to admit, oh, hang on, I can't do all this by myself. What, what, what was, what's your relationship to other people helping you? I, was a, I had a hell of a time coming to terms with it for the same reason, like, you know, going to all those schools and then going on the road with the All-Stars, you know, being independent, um... Uh, and then going into commercial network television, you have independence thrust upon you, even if you want to go in and say, hey, we're a happy family. Um, so it was, it was very difficult um, coming to terms with it. But then a mate of mine, Mark Ryan, who is a philosopher, a will-osopher, um, we don't actually have proper philosophy on this podcast, only willosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah only <laughs> willosophy, the, the philosophy of will. <laughs> One day when it was all getting a bit much and I had to go and uh, buy a walking stick and said, you know, what, what will happen now? Um, he said, has it occurred to you that asking for help might be good for the people around you? Mm. That if you ask for help, it's actually a favour to them because it's like they can do something. Even if it's go and get you a cup of tea, 
they feel like, well, I helped. I helped the cripple. I, I helped the cripple get over the line and have a cup of tea. And it was just a revelation, as all good kind of philosophical perspectives are. And from that moment, I just asked for everything. I asked for too much. Yeah, you've been sneaking out for a jog every day, but you just got used oh, to yeah. the lifestyle. Oh, man, look, you know, when they say MS is relapsing and remitting, it comes, it goes. But you won't be hearing that from me ever again. Uh, you spoke about uh, commercial uh, television. Now, I've got a story to share. You may or may not remember this. I'm not sure. But uh, when you were in the world of commercial television, uh, they were Channel 9, I, I believe it was, was going to make you a... Well, you were putting together an idea to do a Tonight Show of your own, right? Girl Friday, was that the working Girl title Friday, of it? Girl Friday, yeah. And I did a stand-up spot on the pilot of Girl Friday. Yeah, see, I do... No, you probably don't remember this, but... Uh, anyway, oh, Jesus. so so I was involved in the pilot. I wasn't invo- like I wasn't going to be one of the regular people, but they got me in to do like the stand up spot on the on yeah. the pilot. And you kept in contact, you know, afterwards, just in you know how it was going and you know what was going on with the show, that sort of thing. Which to me was a giant thrill at the time. I just started doing stand up. You know, I'd grown up watching you guys on the TV. But my favourite moment of it ever, because at that stage, my dairy farmer parents, even though they'd be encouraged, encouraging and they knew I loved you guys and they all this sort of stuff, but I'm now a young stand-up comedian, you know, uh, living in Carlton, giving away my journalism career to, you know, tell jokes and I'm not making any money and I'm, you know, I'm on the doll or whatever it was, you know, at that stage of my life. And my mum was up staying with myself and my sister and you rang, because this is like the days before mobile phones, people were old. And you rang the house just to give some update. And my mum answered the phone. And you had quite a lovely conversation with my mum. And I think that was the first day she was like, oh, well, I guess if Tim Ferguson's ringing his house, he must be, he must be doing something right. I feel like when I came back, she was like, A, she was like, geez, a lovely man. But B, it was like the first day she kind of looked at me like, oh, maybe... Maybe this is going to work out okay. And if you keep plugging away, <laughs> it'll happen, Will. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, mate. Yeah, the thing with Girl Friday was that uh, uh, I still didn't understand what commercial television needed. And right. you saw Girl Friday. It was still fairly basic. There's a band, there's a this, there's a that. But there were a couple of things I wanted to try that were really old things. One was IMT. I got, uh, uh, who are the American Rosso? Mm-hmm. And said, you guys come in and sell mobile phones and do it in a cool way, in a funny way, because that's what a Tonight Show does. And nobody else would do this because, you know, they've got their heads up their asses. My great enemy, uh, Fitzroy Street St. Kilda, <laughs> I thought this will drive them to distraction. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and things like that. Oh, and, you know, Mr. Nude Suit. A guy in a nude suit, little pudgy guy, Mario Borg, in a nude suit with this very sexy leather-bound lady with bad lip sync would go round to your house, toothbrush style, um, and while you didn't know what was going on, would rifle through your private possessions in a nude suit. So we were doing this stuff, which you... You know, there was no way they were ever going to put it on television. And also, here's Will Anderson. You've never heard of him. Right. But he's young, he's bright. 
give them a shot. But the, the great thing I think people miss about commercial television is that they're all obsessed with making stuff for the western suburbs, making stuff for the people out there, um, which I was really happy to play with because I'd always believed there's no audience you can make money out of in Fitzroy Street or in Darlinghurst because there's only 20 of them and they know the person who runs the venue yeah. so they're not going to buy They're all ticket. getting free tickets anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I've always liked the way they don't underestimate the intelligence or the cultural depth of you know them out there. And uh, so it was fun trying. What about the ABC then? You've had a unique opportunity to like have you know seen the ABC from inside and outside over the last you know 20, 30 years. Like, how is it now compared to what it was? Um, they changed the way programs are commissioned. Um, in the old days, when we first arrived at uh, ABC the head of comedy commissioning was Ted Robinson. He didn't have to ask anybody's permission. He just put it on, whatever right. it was. That's how Dust Capital happened. You can't imagine the all-star series Dust Capital getting past the first hurdle of Gecko and then Bandicoot or whatever system they've developed. <laughs> um, uh, so... In a way, it's harder to get things up. But if I was head of the ABC, um, I would just say, what we're going to do is go balls out. The average viewer of the ABC is 70 years old. That's the mean age. Um, and if we want young people, we have to go balls out. And what we have to do is sacrifice some of those 70-year-olds um, and, of course, if they do that, then they'll realise something which they should, um, is that the 70-year-olds are ex-hippies. The 70-year-olds were at Woodstock. The 70-year-olds invented taking acid, stripping off and having sex in the paddock. 70-year-olds, you know, were great adopters of dirty talking during sex. 70-year-olds were the ones who built the porn industry. I think they will find that... The older audience they think is made of grannies is made of grannies, but that's only because their children were as horny as they are. Right, and the other thing is, and I, I used to think this with my stand-up audience, and I see this all the time, is when I used to walk out and see an older person, I used to worry that they would be offended by some of the content of the show. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now when I see an older person, I'm like, oh, no, no, they'll be the best audience because they've clearly got to the stage where they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not offended by anything, I'm here to laugh in a way that sometimes a 20-year-old hasn't worked out what they believe enough to feel comfortable to laugh at all that stuff. And the other thing is, sometimes when people are in their 60s or 70s now, you're like, oh, yeah, right. You were 40 when I was on Triple J and you listened to it with your kid in the car and you've been a fan since then. Yeah, you're old now, but you weren't that old then. I've been around. I'm old now. Hang on, that's what happened. Uh, so with the ABC, I think with ABC too, they're trying to give it a bit more of that vibe, but you're saying they should be doing it like on the main sort of channels as well, right? Across the board. I mean, of course, the older people, like you say, you know, they were listening to Triple J. They, they invented rock and roll. If you're, if you're 80, you were there when someone said one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock rock, and you outraged your parents by swiveling your hips. I mean, even when it comes to harsh language... Um, the F word, as you know, the ABC calls it, um, 
would not be so popular if Granny hadn't been so good at it. Right. If Grandad and Granny hadn't rooted like bunnies, none of us would be here. Um, if they hadn't gone, if he hadn't taken her out, gotten her a bit drunk, gotten her up the duff in the back of whatever car they were driving at the time, um, none of this would have happened. So you can, you can drop any swear words you like. Um, I've got a thing about swearing, which is, you know, if you're going to be outraged that someone has just said the word fuck or shit, maybe you should stop doing both of those things. <laughs> Maybe you should just cut that out because people are only talking about what the offended person must have done and is certainly thinking about doing. Um, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that I, I, was, on, uh, I was doing some promo for my shows uh, in Queensland recently and I was on ABC, you know, radio, like doing... And he actually asked me, and I was surprised in the year 2017 this was still a question, but he was like, oh, you know, we get a lot of feedback from our listeners. Is there any bad language in your show? Because, you know, they'd like to come and see you, but they don't like bad language. And I'm like, Is, are we still in that era? I, did, I thought we were beyond the point where people care about there being bad language in the show. Well, you would assume because they're doing it all the time. Right. I mean, don't do it. Don't have one. You don't like the word cock. Snip it off. Um, if you don't like the sea bomb, as they call it, which is, I really feel sorry for that swimmer whose name. Emily Seabomb. Yeah, it was Seabomb. Um, <laughs> if you don't like Seabomb, the best way to reduce its power is to say it again and again and again, like Jerry Sadowitz, the Scots comic, would. He would say it for three minutes. So by the end, it was just, I don't know, it ceases to have any power or meaning. It's just the same. Dunk, 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 dunk. It's There's a famous story about Jerry Sadowitz at the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And he goes out at the gala show, which is their big, you know, big show. And he uh, opens with, hello, moose fuckers. And people were genuinely upset to the point where, you know, physical violence was threatened upon him. Do you, have you had moments over your journey, particularly with the All-Stars, where people have been offended in a way that physical violence has been offered towards you? Well, I understand the outrage of the moose fuckers because yeah. it's a private thing. <laughs> um, we actually had similar he problems. He knows. They've heard about it in England. <laughs> we had similar problems in Montreal, in fact, um, where we went out on stage and the first thing Paul said was, um, hi, we're the Doug Anthony All-Stars. We're going to be speaking English this evening because, let's face it, French is a dead language. And they just were not happy. But it was that thing of, we, we thought it's like going on stage in, say, London. Right. Go, you know, this place is crap. Oh, my God, the food's terrible. And your women look like Highland cows. And they all go, oh, wow. Instead, there was just this sort of, grumpy silence it took us 20 minutes to get them back and after the show there were people shouting at us a lady was calling us fascists it's like it's only french and it's not good french i mean we kept digging it's not actually good french it's like someone turning up and speaking shakespeare in english but uh, i think in fact that was probably the most offense um that we'd ever caused uh, for myself, I mean, I've always wanted to go back and touch the bottom of the pool in some way. But audiences become more wary once they know you're going to come out and, you know, cause trouble. So, um, 
in regard to you, because you have taught comedy as well, you know, I mean, like studied and kind of taught comedy, right? It, what fascination do you have with looking at comedy and looking at various different types of comedy? Where did that come from? The thing was I met screenwriters and Australian screenwriters at a conference up in Dalesford. The AWG had put it on and it occurred to me that none of them had any respect for comedy writing. You know, a lady said, oh, you're writing comedy. Well, good for you. You know, what are you writing? Oh, I'm writing about something important. So I could see she had no understanding of what comedy's function is. Um, the way the Golden Girls could raise AIDS in an episode and deal with it, make you laugh and make you cry and finish. In 21 minutes of airtime, I thought this, this needs to be respected. Then I started to look at more Australian films and I thought, oh, I don't know if I've got the emotional strength to see another Australian film. They have to be told that drama is, you know, half crying and half laughing. Uh, and once that happened, I started looking at comedy closely all the way back to what Aristotle said, which is only about three things. Um, well, Aristotle the... always went with the rule of three. Very comic. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. You know, three Romans walk into a bar and they get killed, I think was his, his joke. So, yeah, then I thought, you know, there's something here. I went to see a guy called Steve Kaplan who teaches it and uh, he came out and for two days just kept saying things that were so completely obvious that I'd never even thought about, about how comedy works. Then I became, uh, uh, I was fascinated, but then I thought, uh, this is a perfect vehicle to give Fitzroy the shits. Because Fitzroy and Darlinghurst and, you know, Northbridge all think that the best films are the tragic films. And... As I was saying in Perth to a class on the weekend, the highest communication form is comedy because we don't worry about realism. You can do comedy with a sock puppet, comedy with Woody and Buzz, comedy with anything um, because we just sell the truth. You can only really surprise people, I mean, make them laugh by surprising them with the truth that they either already knew or they have to accept. And I figure that makes it the highest art form, which means it's the most human art form without all of the bullshit, which is why we can piss people off with one line, as in we'll be speaking English tonight because French is a dead language. Whereas drama has to take half an hour <laughs> of raping and pillaging and domestic <laughs> violence and whatever it is to finally get people to say, right, that's it, we're out. It's interesting to hear what you say, because I, I, certainly in the stand-up world, like for a long time now, probably the 20 last, last 20 uh, years or so, people have been dealing with pretty dark and interesting themes on stage, right? You're used to seeing it. In TV, as you said, like you know, those TV shows, Roseanne, Golden Girls, all these sort of shows have had this great capacity to deal with the issues of the t time and speak genuine truths about... I mean, even something like a Seinfeld, you know, to speak truths to these small moments of our lives and what people are really like. But it seems film comedy 
is, has been less about that connection with truth. You often think of film comedy as being these big, broad, you know, comedic movies that don't necessarily fit in this world of, of truth. What, do you have a theory on why that is, or am I even right in saying that? I think, yeah, it's a good point, because they cost so much to make. Um, the producers and the distributors want to get as big an audience as they can, so isn't it easier to just, you know, put a rom-com together and go for as many people as we can possibly find? I'd say the, the most recent of the films that really was, you know, punching people, that I can recall anyway, is Team America. Oh, yeah, of course. A great satirical film, a bunch of, you know, American superheroes going around and just accidentally blowing up pyramids. Um, and uh, it would be good to see more of that stuff. And I think with the Mormons, you know, uh, the Book of Mormon... If we see more of that stuff, then film starts to generate an audience that the gentler comedies, even the ones like we made, it was a deliberately happy film. Come on in, but mind you, that was just to give the shits to Fitzroy. We're going to make a film that's so happy, people walk out and say, that's, that's outrageous. We get bad reviews because nobody died or hanged themselves or... Or caught a disease. But most of the characters did catch a disease, but that's in the sequel. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of asbestos in the sets. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the thing with uh, Team America is, of course, it's puppets. Yeah. And so people don't get so exhausted by the points being made by puppets with, you know, Kim Jong-il singing I'm So Ronery. Um Whereas if you look at similar films like Zoolander, you're right, it doesn't go into all that depth. I've, I've got a theory, and it, look, it's only a working theory, and I'm glad to hear it disproved by somebody else. But it's a theory, ladies and gentlemen, just stand back. I, I believe that there has never been a comedy sequel that is superior to the original movie. Can you think of one? Yeah, no, it's not possible. Um, you look at Zoolander 2... Uh, we knew all the jokes. Right. The, um, yeah, and the, uh, there's a difficulty because a comic character uh, is only one thing. You look at Zoolander, um, and he's only one thing. He's got one identifiable and active characteristic, which is that he's just looking at himself. He's a narcissist. I am so good-looking. Why am I so good-looking? How can I make my good-lookingness, you know, fix the world? And once it's fixed the world, what do you do? He's still good-looking. Um, and you'll find that the, the distillation and the exaggeration of a comedy character's most identifiable characteristic is the thing that means going back to revisit it doesn't really work. Like Blazing Saddle 2 just didn't happen because we've covered it. You know, we've seen the characters, shaken them, we've pushed them to the edge. They've adapted or they haven't, you know, you can't do it again. You can't have a second rom-com. Well, that's why I thought I enjoyed the, um, uh, the idea of the, the guys, the, the UK guys, who, you know, Edward Wright and Simon Pegg and those sort of guys, when they made Hot Fuzz... It was a different movie to Shaun of the Dead. It wasn't a sequel, but it was kind of the same people coming back to make yeah. another comedic movie. And for me, 
that was much more successful than a Shaun of the Dead 2 would have been, for example. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at Shaun and you look at uh, Constable Angel um, in both those films, again, you can see that active characteristic. You know, what's, what's Shaun's most active characteristic is that he's kind of, he's frozen. He just wants to do the same thing every week, and that's the trouble. That's why he's being dumped in the first scene. You look at Angel, he's a perfectionist. He's, he does extreme bicycle riding. Right. Um, he's, you know, super cop, hyper cop, who gets sent to the bush because he's making everybody look bad. Um, but again, that's why you don't need to see Angel do it again because he's overcome his perfectionism and of course, Sean overcomes his, you know, frozen life. Um, and it's why rom-coms don't work. Like, we just spent a 90 minutes with you, Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, getting it together. What? And now you're breaking up again? Yeah, you can't be like when Harry met Sally and then uh, yeah. that he lost where Sally was. And, yeah, yeah. And then he met her again. When Harry re-met Sally. Well, and in a rom-com, <laughs> they're, they're the ones who are actually, they're the rom Right. In the rom-com. Everybody else is funny, but they go off into... They're the drama. They go off into the sunset, you know, happily ever after. And so people don't want to come back and see, what? What? They didn't get along? You know? can, we, can we just pause for a second? Because uh, I got a phone call from the same number uh, in a couple of phone calls in a row, and everyone always knows that means answer your bloody phone. So I'm going to do that. We'll have a pause. We'll come back. The one thing I don't like to do is edit it in any way, Tim. <laughs> Editing is the enemy of what I'm trying to achieve here. The only Great. Thing we, the only thing we edited was basically the fact that um, I went and answered a phone call in the middle of it because I just didn't take the recorders with me. I was talking all the way through that. I should have just left, I should have <laughs> left them recording. That would have been a good bit of ambient noise <laughs> if it had just been just general conversations about banana bread. We both ordered banana bread beforehand um, and I love banana bread when you said you were going to get banana bread i was so excited because i love an excuse to get banana bread i can't i can't have it at home because it's cake you put butter on like and i love the idea of starting my day with some cake that i can put some butter on but at the same time i can't have it in my own house because that's all i would eat but it's very healthy it's got bananas in it come on yeah it's banana and bread it's not Mm. it's banana cake so that is one of the best bits of marketing reinvention of all time that somebody's gone nobody's buying banana cake I reckon if we sell it in slices and let people put butter on it it can be a delicious and healthy breakfast drink and vegans won't eat it hang on why because no I'm just saying I'm just saying that oh they won't I think it's always worth just just taking two steps forward particularly with people like vegans because they're the only ones who'll be upset by that. I was going to say, though, you're in a inner city area of Sydney. There must be, you know, a few... This would be a, a vegan-heavy area, I imagine. It's a gluten-intolerant area, too. Did you know <laughs> that the whole gluten frenzy is based upon total bull twang? Yeah, like most of these things, I would imagine. But yeah. there are some people who have an insensitivity, but most people mm. who think they do don't. That's oh. the vibe, right? And no, most people who won't have gluten think it's a bad thing. Yeah. So. Whereas there's some actual positive health benefits to gluten I read the other day. Yeah. Oh, and it's mostly harmless. Yeah. It's just uh, 
that uh, people tend to follow each other, which is why we end up with anti-vaccination movements, simply because they just they follow each other and nobody stops and says, wait a second, uh, are you actually allergic to vaccination? No. Have you ever met anybody who's ever had a bad reaction to vaccination? No. Here, have this gluten. Tell me uh, about that, though, because I'm interested in your opinion on the anti-vaccination thing because it's a, it's a topic I had a big chunk of material on in my last show and I was kind of amazed to find out that there was still, I would say, at least probably every single night in the audience, there was somebody who, you know, vehemently disagreed with what I was saying on stage. Um, and often I would probably about one in every three shows I would get some feedback online from some group of people with a bunch of arguments trying to persuade me that the things I was saying were, were untrue and, you know, if I just did some more reading and if I just followed this link, you know, to wehatecheese.com, I would read the article that told me everything I need to know, right? And what, what, how do you think that we got to this point where people have never had better access to information but are seeking out terrible information? Well, there's a mate of mine, the same friend, in fact, Mark Ryan, who is working on a PhD based upon a new idea he had. Normally, PhDs are about sifting through the ashes and seeing if someone left a bone in there. Um, But this idea, without popping the cork too much, is about uh, the use of uncertainty to create certainty. Um, uh, It's a bit like global warming. Um, Carbon in the atmosphere is causing the globe to warm. But it's cold today. And so, obviously not. And the polar ice caps are still covered in ice. So obviously the globe is not warming. Um, Certainly not because of people. And there's that slight doubt. There's that little gap between certainty and untruth that people slip into. And so people will say, oh yeah, you might say vaccinating will stop a disease. But my best friend heard that that's not entirely true in every single circumstance. And so it's that tiny little gap between certainty and it not actually being true that will swallow up a lot of people. But if there is that uncertainty gap, And I can understand that. I can understand people identifying an uncertainty gap. Because as I talked about in the show, vaccines are slightly dangerous, you know, but they have a, you know, a society benefit and everyone takes a small risk to protect those who are most vulnerable. It's actually a really nice, you know, kind of metaphor for how perhaps we could live as human beings, you know. But some people see that little uncertainty gap and then get very certain about the uncertainty. How how does that happen, do you think? Well, it's because they only speak to each other. If you look at uh, Byron Bay, Byron Bay, I think, is the only council um, area in Australia that does not put fluoride in its water system because some idiot heard that Hitler was giving people huge doses of fluoride to numb their senses and keep them calm. And so someone acts upon this um, and says, well, we can't have even tiny amounts Um, I had a a woman look at me straight on and with perfectly straight emotion said, I don't use fluoride because it numbs your ability to question the system. 
And I said, you realize you're saying this to a professional comedian? Like, this is all I do. So you're saying I should stop brushing my teeth and I will, my questions will be bigger, longer, broader, deeper? Um, the fact is, people all hang around each other in Byron Bay and no one actually calls them out on it. Um, I think it's, it's worth pushing back and saying, if you do not vaccinate your children, you are, from the depth of your personality to the highest peak, an asshole. That you are a person we can do without. And we can do without your grubby children because you are going about your way to perpetuate illnesses. Now, it's worth someone coming out and saying that in a funny way um, because there's nothing like ridicule to pop a balloon full of farty methane. Well, the funny thing is in the show, and this was something not that I planned to do, but it was something that developed because I realised that at that point in the show, I did get some walkouts from people who didn't like the... So I then incorporated that into part of the show, which was like I would get on the front foot and I would say, look, you've seen 40 minutes of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you could just do me a favour, if you could just breathe in gently, hold it in and fuck off. And the reason is this is a public health and safety issue. This is my audience. I can't afford to lose half of them to smallpox. Get on your tram back to Brunswick and get out of here because you do need to... So we live in this world now, right, where... You know, I mean, you've started writing, you know, fake around the topics of fake news, right? So talk to me about how you see the world of journalism and facts compared to what it used to be. This is an unprecedented time, right? Isn't it when it comes to information and bad information? Well, and Donald Trump can be thanked for making fake news, you know, such a label. And I do, I write this column, which is fake news you can trust. And, you know, lots of people read it and they have a bit of a laugh. At the end of the day, um, because you try to make it funny, in the same way that that was the news that was did in the 50s, all the way through, you know, The Onion and whatever the guy in London is doing, um, is you try to boil down what's happening and discover a kernel of surprising truth about it. which will then hopefully be accused of being fake. Um, It's easy because people can say, well, it's just comedy. Um, But hopefully someone actually takes it seriously enough to call me out on it and say, that is not true, Um, when in fact it is. The the world is in a position uh, where truth isn't what it used to be. It doesn't have the value it used to. I read an interesting New York Times article. That's right. The New York Times, um, which was uh, talking about how the fundamentalist Christian view of the world, including science and archaeology and where the hell the dinosaurs came from, um, created the ground that uh, Kellyanne Conway could stand upon to say this is an alternative fact because there are millions of people now in the world who believe there is an alternative fact uh, that will explain where the world came from, um, what the uh, Grand Canyon actually is. Uh, Dinosaur bones are there to lure us into questioning that the Earth is older than 5,000 years old. And 
So we can blame the fundamentalist Christians. And while we're there, the anti-vaxxing hippies, because for them, they would say, you know, it's an alternative fact to say the danger of your child contracting autism from a vaccination is enough to risk them dying of polio, cholera, typhoid, and a common cold. Uh, so then what, what do we do? How do, how do we... Can, ah. Is it repairable? Yes, I know how to save the world. Okay, good. That's what I really came here for. So if you could just sum up that for us. <laughs> this, is, this is my hot topic at the moment. Comedy will save the world. It's okay. the only thing. Feels that a little will... self-interested. To yeah, be honest. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Buy the book and also the T-shirt. Comedy is the only thing that politicians fear. If a politician could go in to a newspaper and shoot anybody, it would be the cartoonist. Of course, the editor. It's it's too nefarious. It's too wafty. The editor, but the cartoonist is the one who boils it down every day. Charlie Hebdo was the target. In all of Paris, these two idiots said, oh, actually, no, we're going around to Charlie Hebdo because they're being funny. What politicians fear is the thing that brought Tony Abbott to his knees. It's ridicule. It is being laughed at. Um, That's the thing because you can't recover from that. So the next time Malcolm Roberts stands in the Senate to say that global warming isn't caused by people um, it's the job of the other other politicians and comedians and comic writers to make it untenable for him to make it too embarrassing to make it too fraught with ridicule for him to even open his mouth science can't fix it because it's full of facts and we have alternatives for that but there's nothing that can beat the absolute undeniable truth in terms of winning. And truth is not a fact. It's higher than that. Uh, Tell me then, how does Trump fit into that? Because there was never anyone who was more mocked or comedically portrayed than Trump. Now, clearly, as you can see from his tweet about Saturday Night Live, he hates it. He hates when people make fun of him, but it wasn't enough to bring him down. In the Midwest, they don't watch Saturday Night Live. Simply, they hadn't been exposed to it. Um, And also, they hated Hillary. They hated the idea of being bossed around by a woman who had really bad hand movements and wore pantsuits. But they just weren't exposed to the show. They weren't exposed to Alec Baldwin. And when they were, it was always couched in some New York Times article the thing is to get it to them where they live. It's like what Nixon did with Hanoi. Bomb them where they live. Drop the jokes on them from a helicopter with Krusty the Clown on the side of it. Uh, okay, I, I, I need, we should finish up soon because I don't want to take all of your day, but I have a few more questions that I want to uh, ask you. The first one is, I've been really surprised, like when I watched The Big Dig when I was a kid, uh, the person at the heart of it, the host of it, Wendy Harmer, like, you know, always appeared to me to be holding that craziness together. Um, one of the strongest voices on television at the time, one of the most humorous voices on television at the time, and, you know, controlling this incredible circus that as a host myself, I now have an extra appreciation even more than I did then of how hard her job 
must have been not only to come up with this new material for the show but to be trying to hold all this madness together why do you think that that didn't lead to generations of women being given similar roles in comedy shows in Australia because it didn't and that has surprised me and as two white men we can finally sort out sexism here but no no why do you have a theory on why that is or why that might be there is a natural sexism in people, including women, including, you know, women who make executive decisions at all the networks. Um, the trouble is a woman doesn't want to be branded as pushing for women. So they tend to sit back when a man is given a job because nobody wants to say, oh, for God's sake, Tina, really? You know, Jane Kitson, again, Kitty Flanagan... You know, how about a guy? What about guys? Um, So women can't really push for a woman to be in that role. Uh, You need a man to be interested. Um, At the time, it was producer Ted Robinson, for whom all of us can... Yeah, correct. Myself included. Yeah, yeah, great for our our careers. So I think it's it's not so much a prejudice against women. It's just it's always uh, an easier fit... Um, to find a guy because there are plenty Um, and to find a a woman always takes a little bit of extra thought and there's rarely a woman there who can also put her paddle in the water whereas everybody will agree you know hey Charlie Pickering oh that's a good idea and he's got a feminine side and away we go Uh, it would be great I mean it'd be great just for Wendy to still be on TV but like Kitty Flanagan couldn't host the Pickering show. Um, instead, she was chosen as a second banana for no reason apart from the fact that it was kind of easier and Charlie had been stolen from commercial television, stolen back, which is as transitions go for a career, one I'm sure I would have envied. <laughs> now I couldn't imagine anything scarier. But... Uh, being able to go from primetime commercial TV back, you know, that's hard to beat. But I would, uh, I would assume Kitty Flanagan should be given a show right now. Okay, well, that solved that. Uh, the next one, we touched on it a little bit with the Christianity thing, but uh, do you have any kind of higher belief in anything? Uh, like, what's your, how would you sum up, you know, kind of... Well, you know, your worldview in regard to... I mean, I guess the simplest way I always like to ask this is, why do you think that we're here? Do you believe that life has a purpose and what do you think it is? I think a life has a purpose anyway. Life has a purpose we impose upon it. And maybe there is a great wow-wow, but whatever it is, it's not what anybody thinks. And even atheism, it's, that's not what anybody thinks because atheism is standing in denial of something. Um, and so I don't really attach myself to any religious belief just because it's invented by people I do feel while we're here we should do something Um, my job is to shake people up I never thought it was I thought it was to make people have a bit of a laugh and you know let go their feelings but then uh, Peter Rabbit TV producer said to me I've seen your polling you're quite a polarizer it then took me five years to accept the fact that you know you dear listener 
have been slightly given the shits all through this entire interview. Oh, that's okay. There are plenty of people who listen to this podcast who get the shits through this interview because I'm here and it's my podcast. That's the nature of it. And it's great that they tune in. But dear listener, (laughs) let me tell you, you give us just a little bit of the shits occasionally. Oh, yeah, that's true also. So the main thing is, you know, is there a God or not? I don't think that's actually important. I don't think a spiritual life is actually important. All of the questions are solved by doing stuff. Do you, did uh, getting at like what people, you know, consider to be and has been like a major illness, did that change your thinking in any regard to that? Because often you hear about, you know, like the big life moments where people have a kid or they go to prison or they get some sort of illness and it changes everything that I ever thought about anything. Did that happen for you at all? No, unfortunately. (laughs) You know, a guy said you got multiple sclerosis and, you know, it took me a couple of years to even, you know, open a book to see what it was. Right. Mainly because I was just getting on with stuff and occasionally I would tilt to the side or my eyes would go cross or I'd feel like my head was on fire. But uh, I was determined just to keep going and MS will stop me eventually. So, no, it was never a revelation... People, of course, say, my God, you're so busy. And I am. Like, you know, I'm making movies. I'm touring with the boys. We've got Billy and the Dinosaurs, which is an orchestra. And um, I can't even remember all the other things I'm doing. But it only seems like a lot to them because I'm in a wheelchair. If I wasn't in a wheelchair, they'd say, oh, keep him busy. (laughs) Because I'm in a wheelchair, they go, oh, it's amazing. It's amazing what you do. There are 24 hours in the day. You can only do so much with any of them. I'm only doing all these different things because inevitably some of them fail. Right. <laughs> it's, it's what happens. And you're writing a book. Yes, I am writing a book. Oh, yeah. Why? Because it might just never get published. Right. So it is, uh, I certainly know from, you know, having MS that, uh, you know, time is of the essence. Because I do less exercise than most people, I will die before everybody else. But it doesn't matter because you just get busy. And I've been dead before. Everybody has. You were dead for billions of years until a spermatozoa wriggled its way into an egg way back when. So, you know, we've all been dead before and it's not that bad. Uh, Well, that's that's pretty much uh, what I normally ask people is, you know, what do you reckon happens when you die? So... You just uh, you, you would say we go back to the state we were before we were alive. Is that is that yeah. a summation of whatever that is? Yeah, yeah. Because heaven is too ludicrous. It's too ludicrous an idea. And really, who judges Saint Peter? Uh, I mean, the guy doesn't even speak English. Right. <laughs> and turning up, I mean, surely everybody goes to hell because of all the wanking. I mean, everything, every priest, you know, everybody has been wanking or, you know, clip flicking their entire lives. You're all going to hell and nothing, you know, saving all the orphanages in the world is not going to help. So, yeah, we go back to whatever it was before. That gives me a lovely image of like heaven where they've essentially set up heaven 
to be this place that there would be like thousands and millions of people. But there's like three people just going, I really thought it would be busier than this. Well, I guess we shouldn't have put in that wanking thing, huh? Uh, well, also, they've got no arms. <laughs> and there are no washing machines for them to sit on. Seven, seven armless people just wandering around <laughs> a vast paradise going, I really thought there'd be others here by now. Yeah, yeah, and there's no coffee. Why? Because we got no arms. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I don't mean to stereotype. I'm sure there are armless people who still find a way to masturbate. I don't. Oh yeah. I don't imagine that would actually keep you from having a crack at it. That's what the spin cycle's for. Right. You just do some more yoga and so anyway, whatever. You'd be able to work it out, guys. Oh yeah, yeah. So don't lose hope. Uh, if you. Is there a project, is there something that you would have loved to have done that you perhaps now think is like, okay, that's... Because, you know, you've got all these projects, these things that you still want to do, but is there something that the time has probably passed that that will never happen that you have any regrets about not doing? No, uh, I've kind of gotten to it or I've tried it and it's fallen over. There's still... There's a book I've been writing for 15 years which is... I think uh, still slowly ticking along, mainly because I'm too chicken shit to finally, you know, send it to a publisher and have them say, yeah, um, no, actually, no, nobody wants to read that. But um, uh, I will bring out Scarlet Blank. When you hear Scarlet Blank, you will know that Tim is doing his greatest ever balls out jumping off a cliff screaming Geronimo book and it won't look like much it will just look like a little storybook but it will be the the book that has scared me the most for a long time well that seems as, as good a note as any to finish on right that feels like we came to a if you like in a structural sense from your screenwriting way that felt like a nice nice moment towards the end right yeah the hero goes back to where he started which is you know do something, balls out. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for catching up with me. I appreciate this. Uh, thank you to the uh, wonderful staff uh, here at, uh, what is it, Madame Frou-Frou? Is that Madame, the name of it? Yeah, Madame Frou-Frou Madame Cafe. Madame Frou-Frou Cafe. I should, yeah. I should give them a shout-out for being so nice and letting us shout obscenities in the corner of their cafe for the last 70 minutes. So and we're not even wearing pants. No, I mean, well, of course. You're allowed to do what you like. Um, all right. Uh, now, tell people where, what would you like people to know about, you know, where they can come and find, you know, your fake news or other projects. What should, uh-huh. you know, they can uh, watch your movie. Tell people, like, this is the plugs bit, basically. So if you've got things to plug, you know, let's plug them now. Well, first up, listener, take a good look at yourself, okay? You've been sitting here and all this time, if, you know, if you haven't been jerking off, there's something wrong with you. Secondly, you can find me on Twitter at Real Tim Ferguson. That's right, Real Tim Ferguson. Unreal Tim Ferguson doesn't get around much these days. Um, keep an eye open for Billy and the Dinosaurs. It's an orchestra performance piece. It's like Peter and the Wolf for kids, except it's got dinosaurs instead of a rabid dog. And you can find me on thenewdaily.com with fake news you can trust. And you really can trust that it's fake news. 
And last but not least, the Doug Anthony All-Stars will be back touring around doing shows again, of course, as well. In all, in all likelihood. <laughs> you know, we're very old men. Well, that's the plan, though, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And they are so reluctant getting them on stage. <laughs> it's just like you hold a cat over a bucket of water, it wriggles with less vigour. But, yeah, we are on our way to you, the world. Coming to Edinburgh and also Newcastle. (laughs) Uh, Tim Ferguson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, mate.